worship with a reading from Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a child a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Be God. Welcome to church. Please say hello to someone. How y'all doing? Hey, it's good to see y'all. Welcome to church. I'm glad you're here. My name's Chris. If you're a guest, welcome. Uh, before we get cranked, uh, I have one more announcement. We just finished a series on marriage. Uh, I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. But if you are hoping maybe to get a bit more out of it, if it's over and you're like, oh, my marriage kind of feels the same. If, you, if you're in the room and, and you know that you, there's more steps for you to take uh, when it comes to your marital health, um, we will be starting a marriage course uh, in January. And it's pretty low stakes. Um, it's going to meet once a month for three months. It's not very demanding, uh, but could pay dividends in your marriage. Um, you're, you'll be going through the book that the whole series was based on. So you're just going to really be getting after it and reading it um, as a couple together. Um, a lot of people in our church have done this and found it profoundly helpful when it comes to marriage. I'd highly commend it to you. Um, you can find details online. You can scan the code, um, register, and I hope you do because it's remarkably beneficial. Um, okay, so today is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, historically, Advent is the season of the church that leads um, our, our way up to Christmas morning. And the whole season, the entire season, calls us as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, uh, to wonder and meditate and marvel at the mystery, what the New Testament would call the mystery, of God becoming man. Jesus, the idea of Emmanuel. God with us, that Christians tend to be pretty inoculated to, uh, but is revolutionary, very radical notion in the history of the world. Advent simply means arrival, coming into place, uh, appearance, the emergence. It often ref that word, Advent, often refers to paradigm-altering things, the advent of the light bulb, change the West, the advent of, get this word right, anesthesia. Changed medicine forever. Things that come into place. Did I get it right? Except I get it wrong. I was good. Um, things that come into place that change the game. It was forever for, when electricity, when the electric grid went across the West. It changed the game. It was the advent of the electric grid. So Advent calls us to to remember the coming of God to man when God came to us. Not only that he came, but he came to accomplish something. He came to do something. He brought something with him when he came, something that changed the universe. It changed the cosmos. It changed the course of human history, let alone ADB, right? You know, you can, we call it all sorts of things what Jesus came to bring. We call it forgiveness. That's right. We call it redemption. All sorts of names we find to talk about what it was that Jesus was bringing. But I want to sit with the classic Christmas texts and see how they describe what it was that Jesus was bringing when he came. So I just want to talk about two things that they wrap our minds around. The implications, number one, that God came to us. That means something, y'all. And second, what was the thing that he was bringing? Got the, got the road map here? Great. Thank you, Holly. All right, here we go. One, let me count on Holly. All right, let me pray. Then we'll get after it. 
<laughs> Just need affirmation up here. All right, here we go. Lord, would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you calm our hearts, God? We just admit, as Christmas begins to crank up and all the shopping, man, just, we can get in a, in a dizzy, like just chaos and hurry and busy and our calendar's thick right now. Lord, would you grant us the grace, Holy Spirit, to sit with some really simple truths um, that I believe could radically transform our hearts today. So come, Holy Spirit. Do the things that only you can do in our midst. Our eyes are on you. Our confidence is in you. It's not in me. It's not in this room. It's in you, Jesus. We love you. And we pray these things. Amen. The idea that God came to men has vast, sweeping implications, if you'll take the time to consider it. What does it mean that God had to come to us if this thing was going to work? He had to come to, to us. It says something about God, and it says, well, it says a lot about God, and it says a lot about us, too. What does it say about us? For humanity, the fact that God had to come to us, it's commenting on something. It's commenting on the helplessness and the confusion and the state of despair that humanity had created for itself. Primarily, the outside of God, you and I, this is one of the images, the biblical images that it gives us. Outside of God, you and I are stumbling around in the dark because of our rebellion against our creator. That we are, humanity, is a fallen race in desperate need of help from the outside. Now, if you think about it, uh, the fact that humanity is fallen broken, whatever, however you want to say it, it's not really a hard sell. Uh, if you look at like the histories of war and genocide and all the horrible atrocities that humanity has conceived, it's not a hard sell. But ironically enough, when you begin to talk about humanity as stumbling around in the darkness, as uh, broken, fallen, when we talk about things like original sin, all this kind of stuff, you find a whole lot of people wanting to object. Wait a second. Humanity has made all sorts of advances, right? Look at how far we've come, how technology and laws and nations have, have pushed us. Humanity, they'll say, look at the progress. Humanity must be ripening to a beautiful maturation, right? I mean, someone will stand up in the back and say, how can you say that? And if they won't defend uh, like humanity as a whole, at least they'll defend themselves, right? I'm not a bad apple, Right? I mean, maybe everyone else is out there is kind of crazy, but, but look at me. I mean, we're all in church, you know? Right? You'll find swaths of intelligent modern people saying, how dare you say humanity is not bold and progressing, and we're better now than we've ever been. So in Advent, y'all, the idea is that God had to come to us. And it's worth sitting with. It means humanity would never ripen into maturity on its own. It means humanity could never establish the kind of utopia that all of our hearts long for, right? That we didn't, haven't, couldn't, wouldn't, and couldn't, right? Make our way as a race to true peace, to true life. Humanity, the race of humanity. Y'all, the rise in popularity of uh, the dystopian story right? I mean, it's huge now, right? How many mini series are about dystopian futures, right? It's all saying the same thing. It's just saying it differently. It's saying that humanity's broken 
And even when we establish these really intentional structures to fix things, like, I don't know, world hunger or peace on earth, right? It just falls apart in the end. Every dystopian novel says the same thing. No matter how much effort we put forth, how much technology we come up with, society breaks down. So in many ways, it's not a hard sell, but Advent, y'all, unlike every other world religion, Advent is saying that humanity cannot fix it by pulling itself up by bootstraps or acting more moral. Humanity needs a rescue, a resuscitation. Morality is there in Christianity. There's things for us to, it's, we have to change and become more moral and ethic. But y'all, it's the consequence, not the cause. Man becoming more moral is the effects of Advent, not the cause of Advent. So in other words, you didn't get your act together, and then Jesus said, well, now I'll love you. You didn't come to church today because you're perfect, okay? We're not, I'm not on this stage because I got my act together. I'm on this stage because God came to me. He pursued me. Do you understand the relevance of this? It flips how we look at Christianity. We think, in fact, some of you may be here today because you're like, well, I finally got my stuff together, so I guess I'll go to church. You've missed it. God had to come to you. He had to pursue you. The Bible's going to say that you were in such a state of confusion and despair. And it talks about it all sorts of ways. It'll talk about it like this, dead in sin. It'll talk about it in the flesh. It'll say, give you images like slavery. That's an image that the Bible's going to give over and over and over again to say, this is the state in which you were in. In captivity. The New Testament will talk about it as under the power of the prince of the air. Ephesians 2, or Jesus in Matthew 12, yes, would even put it in a, in a more startling way. He would say humanity as a whole can be likened to goods, possessions, that have ended up in the house of a strong man, under that strong man's authority. And, and if, that, if those goods are going to be liberated, the strong man has to be tied up. Fascinating picture that Jesus gives us of humanity as a whole. The strong man that they are in possess, who possesses them, he's got to be defeated for them to be free. These are all the different ways in which the Bible talks about the state of humanity outside of God. And each image deserves its own exploration and has all sorts of implications. But the Bible is going to maintain that you and I were made for glory, made reflections of God to, to, to rule on his behalf, to be royal ambassadors for him. Um, in creation. But me and you have instead chosen to take the glory for ourselves. That's, this is the biblical narrative, right? Uh, we've chosen to take our bodies as our own. That we created ourselves. We made ourselves. And, that, and then we set up our own little kingdoms and queendoms, if you're a woman, outside of God's wisdom and love. And here's the rub. Here's what I'm getting at. That when we do that, we cut off the branch that humanity is sitting on. See, in the Bible, sin is not simply a moral act. It's not simply ethical. It's primordial. Sin sabotages the structures of existence. It's chaos. It's being thrown back into non-existence. When we sin against God and our neighbor, it's humanity stepping on the very hose that is supplying the air that it's dependent on for life. Sin is self-defeating. It's a self-destroying way to live. It's not like busy work that God gives you to see if you can jump over some hoops. Let's see if he can not look at that for six months. It's not what we're talking about. 
He's trying to help you become a full-grown human, (laughs) an actual human who lives and breathes the free air that God's given us, who rules for God in the world, right? It's not, you guys get what I'm saying. In the Bible, there are sins, plural. These are acts, you know, things that we do. And then there is sin, which is a mode of existence. Like you can dip your toe in sin or you can fully submerge yourself in it. And when we live amongst the people that have collectively rebelled against the love and wisdom of God, when we collectively step on the only true supply of life, God himself, his love, his power from our midst, when we tell God we basically we don't want him around, it creates basically like a dense fog, so to speak in our relationships, a dense fog, a society submerged in sin lacks the vision to, to uh, traverse the landscape of life. And it's, it has all sorts of implications. It, it, it means that like just living, just living like me and you, like just getting along is now really difficult. <laughs> like living with other people in the same house, like really difficult. That sin, pride, selfishness has created this fog in which we can't traverse the most simple things of life, right? Harmonious relationships, self-discipline, work, love, right? Procreation, friendships, all of it now, in the words of Genesis 3, is riddled with thorns and thistles. In other words, it'll hurt. But the Bible's going to maintain sin just doesn't hurt us. It changes us. Just getting the context, y'all. Sin, in fact, there's many instances in the Bible where it talks about humans, humanity, becoming beasts, becoming subhuman, almost taking away our eyes. It calls uh, people who, who live in sin blind. It makes you into a kind of creature, you see, into a beastly creature, like King Nebuchadnezzar, whose pride drove him mad and whose mind came be like, came, became like that of a beast, if you recall. Now, please forgive me. I can't help but think of the creature Gollum in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Gollum was a hobbit, you remember. But he was driven deep into the darkness by his obsession with the ring. And in that self-inflicted prison, he began to change. He became shriveled. His eyes grew huge to adapt to the darkness. And he was on his way to becoming one of those translucent, kind of eyeless creatures who learn how to survive without any light. He had become a sub-hobbit. See, Tolkien is trying to give you a picture of the power of sin over humanity. Tolkien's trying to give you a picture of what sin does to you. And for some, the darkness is so great, even coexistence becomes a challenge with others. They can't manage friendships. They can't manage a job. And like Gollum, they are driven to isolation. Our society alone has an undercurrent driving us to isolation in the way in which we've set things up. So on top of that, add the fact that many of us can't have healthy relationships in life because we're too daggum selfish and prideful. Sin makes the most simple things in life feel like thorns and thistles. And it it creates in us a sense of desperation like a caged animal in which we lash out at anyone in the dark, even if they've come to help us. This This is the picture 
that the Bible gives of mine and your soul outside of God. It's an accurate depiction of humanity. It's not a hard sell. I think all of us can relate to feeling alone and afraid and in the dark and everything around us is a threat. I think all of us have been at times in our lives where survival and self-preservation are our highest, are our highest priority. It makes us, y'all, sin makes us like desperate animals. And there are some ways the Bible describes the state of man that we've explored, but all of it is getting at this alienation from God. Sin and pride have done this to us. It's done it to me, and it's done it to you. And it makes life impossible. And if it, if it makes the most simple things impossible, like a, like a healthy relationship, how much more does it make salvation impossible? How much more redemption? How much more does it make things like, I don't know, peace on earth impossible? So many people think Christianity... It's just like any other religion. It's a moral improvement plan, right? You go to the church like you go to the gym. But you see, Advent says the exact opposite. In Christmas, we're acknowledging in the coming of Christ that you and I, humanity as a whole, was so sick, so fallen, so blind that no amount of effort on our end would bring the kind of healing that we actually need. And that God himself had to come to us in our darkness. That we couldn't combine all of our efforts to achieve peace on earth. That's the modern assumption, isn't it? Isn't that the modern assumption? That if we just team together and huddle and technology as our aid, we can bring about peace on earth with the right agendas, with the right tools, with the right leadership. Hello, election year. We can fix the world. And it's a beautiful ideal, but despite ideal, but despite the countless generations who've believed this and tried, despite all the new innovations and modern marvels of technological advancements that we enjoy, the assumption of progress has never really delivered. It just hasn't, y'all. It just hasn't. That doesn't mean that Christians don't try passionately to pursue flourishing of society. No, we do. We just don't think politics or law or technology can achieve it. Because man's primary problem is not political or legal or technological. It is primarily a spiritual relational problem. That's what the Bible maintains. In reality, y'all, as an aside here, all of our innovations in technology over the past hundreds of years has only made us better at killing. It is pretty undisputed that the 20th century is by far the bloodiest, most murderous century in all of human history. Simply by the fact that now one man can kill a hundred in a matter of seconds with a machine gun or millions in a second with an atomic bomb. In other words, for all of our advancements and all of the tools that we've come up with, all it's done is made us able to do what's in our heart, which turns out a lot of times is really selfish and murderous. And we can use a thing like an airplane as a tool to transport 300 people, or we can use it as a weapon and flood it into a skyscraper. And this is exactly the state of humanity in which we find ourselves, isn't it? They just have more tools to do the things that are in their hearts. It's not progress, y'all. It's not progress. In many cases, it's backwards. Advent. You're like, I thought this was going to be like a feel-good Christmas sermon today. Like, you know? I mean, like, I just decorated my house. Right? <laughs> I'll get there. Advent, Advent means God had to come to you. It means he had to initiate because you were utterly lost, utterly blind, utterly desperate, and utterly in the dark, right? If we miss this, y'all, which many people would prefer not to, like, 
um, to, to talk about things like this. But if we neglect the context, if we neglect the larger narrative, if we don't deal with the facts of the universe, as ugly as they may be, we won't understand why Christmas is astoundingly good news of great joy and peace. It won't land on us because we'll miss the nature of the joy and the peace and the hope that Christmas is supposed to bring. What kind of joy? The candles represent joy, hope, love, peace. What kind of all those things are we talking about when we talk about Christmas? I think we're know we're we know we're supposed to feel that at Christmas, right? You're supposed to feel that, right? You're supposed to like have the warm fuzzies about love, joy. Like, but how does that supposed to actually happen in our lives? If we are underwhelmed by sin, if we are underwhelmed by the darkness of sin, what it's done to me and you, like it's not that really big of a deal, then we will equally be as underwhelmed by the light on offer in Jesus, you see. Amen. You see, if you don't mind the fog, then when a fresh wind is offered to blow away the fog, you're like, man, kind of shrug. We kind of shrug. Salvation, the Bible, Jesus, Christmas, hope, love, joy, peace. Like, yeah, those things should matter, but that's honestly how many of us feel about Christmas, or even how many of us feel about Christmas bringing, like, any real joy or peace or hope. Like, how, right? We kind of, like, the lights are great, right? The other day I was driving with my wife, and she literally squealed when we went around some lights, and they were just so pretty. I mean, there's snowflakes, right? It was great. They were great. Decorations are great. Like, we went with a fake tree this year, best decision of my life. You know, gifts, I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm here for it, man. Family gatherings are Great, I guess, you know, Everyone, everyone's fine. I'm spitting a lot today, sorry. Everyone's fine. Uh, but at the end of the day, right, all the trappings and traditions, they just kind of fall short, don't they? Like they don't really deliver, at least in the way that I think we feel they're supposed to deliver, right? I'm happy to give stuff. I'm happy to get stuff. But is that how Christmas brings hope, joy, love, and peace? Like, is that it? Like you're going to be in debt like three months, right? Joy, yay, right? No, I don't think that's the thing. I don't think that's it. I mean, I'm here for it, but in terms of gifts and lights, giving us any real peace in life, any lasting joy, it's just, it just, I think we know as soon as the tornado of all the wrapping papers, all of it, you know, when we sit amongst the mess and the chaos begins to settle the day after, a lot of us have a lingering feeling of, did I miss something? <laughs> I thought this was supposed to, like, bring hope and joy and love. It just doesn't quite hit the mark. So every Sunday, all I want to do is root your heart in something a bit deeper than gifts and lights, as much as I love them. And as we begin, as we worship together, just like we worshiped a few minutes ago, that you and you, like, our hearts would begin to feel the fog being blown away. And that maybe for the first time this year, Christmas would mean more than just lights and gifts in your heart. And we do it along with the candles. Each one represents something, uh, some aspect of the Christmas message. Like we've said, peace, hope, love, and joy. Now, different traditions say different, they mean different things. And we've all, all we've done today is commented on the color. Have you noticed the color of the candles? We have three purple, one pink, and one, one white. Those colors have been established um, for centuries. Very, very old. And they symbolize what? Well, what's most of them? Most of them are purple. Do you know what it symbolizes? Darkness. Deep darkness. Yet, they're not black, are they? No, they're purple. In other words, we're not without all hope. It's like the darkness of morning before the sunrise. It's not black, it's purple. It's like 
darkness that we sit in when light is just around the corner, you see. And it's communicating something to us. Part of what makes Christmas so bright is the reality of the darkness, y'all. It's why in a month at our candlelight service, which is my favorite service of the year, we're going to sit in total darkness in this room. We're going to turn on every light. It's a symbol. It's a visual representation of the gospel. The first candle in some traditions is called the prophecy candle. And that's what we read from Isaiah 9. And we won't be long. I'm basically wrapping up. But I just want to sit with this for a second, uh, with this prophecy of what Jesus is bringing. Okay? Um, how exactly does the coming of Jesus, the birth of a Middle Eastern man 2,000 some odd years ago, supposed to bring things like hope, joy, peace, love in any real way. See, up at this point, we've just been talking about what Advent says about humanity, but what does it say about God? And what is exactly coming into place with Jesus? The analogy of light and darkness that we've sat with is supposed to have an impact on it, but that's just the analogy. What's the thing itself, you see? Like, you were in darkness, and now light has come, but what's arriving? Is it a cosmic light bulb? No. The analogy is that God's turning on a cosmic light bulb, but what's the actual thing? Well, let's read it. Isaiah 9 says it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. For, for to us a child's born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of, I'm sorry, yes, of the increase of his government and of peace... There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what's the main thing, when you look at this, what's the main thing coming into being? What is the child bringing? What is literally on his shoulders? What is he carrying? Did you see it? Oh, it's a kingdom. <laughs> Come on, David. <laughs> it's a kingdom. Yeah, it is. There it is. Yeah. yeah. That's what he's bringing. That's what it said. The government's on his shoulders, and over his kingdom shall be no end of the increase of his government. No end. Forevermore. He's going to establish this kingdom on justice and righteous, righteousness. Earthly governments, earthly kingdoms, they're going to have an end. But his, it's going to last forever. So just quick aside, because we are... Wrapping it up here. Um, it's why, since we said the word government, it's why a hyper-focus on politics always misses the mark if you're a Christian. Because you're championing, championing a temporal arrangement, you see. Uh, most likely an arrangement that does not have justice and righteousness as its pillars, no matter how much it claims to. Y'all, um, I just, Christian nationalism is not a biblical ideal. It is so short-sighted in so many ways, we can't even begin to talk about it. And as we roll into an election year, I just want to say, before we get into the mess, um, as a Christian, do not pour your passion out on a temporal kingdom that will one day end. We got our guy. We, we got a government. And it's on the shoulders of someone named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And his government, y'all, is not routinely at risk of shutting down. <laughs> Nor 
nor does it sit on the shoulders of corrupt men. It sits on the shoulders of whom was described, whom his name that we've said over and over again. Did you notice all those titles that are given to the kid, the son, the child, are titles for God himself? Look, vote, okay? Be involved. Use your influence. Use your voice. But quit looking for salvation in an earthly government. You will not find it because it is not there. Learn how. Okay, you want to clap? Do it. Commit. You're going to do it. Commit. Okay, so it's too late now. Learn, learn how to pour your passion into God's kingdom and see. Hey, stay with me. See if you don't shed the paranoia and anxiety in your life due to putting your hope in a kingdom that will one day fall. Okay, back to the main line of thought. If the thing that Jesus is bringing is a government, if it's a kingdom, what can that mean? Last conclusion here. How does a kingdom, a government, bring peace, hope, love, joy? As the angel said, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. It's really quite simple. You can boil it down to one thought. How does a kingdom bring peace and joy and love? <clears throat> you can boil it down to this one thing. And you, some of you are probably going to be offended by it. I remember being offended by this. I have friends that aren't Christians today because they were offended by this one thought. And it's really the only way that God's peace and joy and love will ever enter into your experience in any lasting way, and it's this. God knows better than you in all things concerning all creation, especially concerning what makes humanity flourish. God alone knows what brings peace, joy, hope, and love. I've got a friend, love this dude, not a Christian anymore. He was on his way out of Christianity, and he saw this verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And he said, that is absurd. It, it enraged him. Lean not, lean not on your own understanding? What kind of, he's, he's, I'm out, not a Christian. He's out. He said, basically, I know what makes me happy. I know what makes me flourish, not God. In other words, he was offended at the idea that God knew more, better than him. He was offended by the idea that God deserved to be in charge, not him. I, I just saw this female Christian artist who bailed on Christianity. She's now in the ranks of the ex-evangelicals, which, yes, is a thing. And her latest single is called Better, in which she sings the lyrics, I, Now I Know Better. And it represents her exodus from Christianity. And of course, she doesn't have the guts to sing, I know better than God, but make no mistake, it's what she's saying. Listen, today, right now, in my heart and in your heart are various rooms in which we are still convinced we know better than God as to what makes us flourish. Whether it has to do with what you do with your money, what you do with your body, or what you look at, or what you talk to others about, or the feelings that you feed, because underneath every sin, whether it's lust or unforgiveness or hatred or gossip or greed, almost every sin has behind it the belief that you know better than God. You know better. You know what's right and wrong. You know better what brings life and what brings death. This was the original sin in the garden, obviously. The one thing God said would bring death. She said, no, you know what? I think that's going to bring life, right? And as long as we think we know better, you are still in your kingdom. You're not in his kingdom. And therefore, it's a bit of a foolish thing to expect to experience the peace, hope, joy, and love that's on offer. Because what he's bringing is a kingdom, a rule, a reign, a way of being human. 
And if we are convinced in the depths of our hearts that we know better than him, then you're never, you should never expect to experience the kind of peace, hope, love, and joy that that kingdom rule brings. He brings Jesus brought God's perfect will. You see? Not permissive will. Perfect will. And, and that's what's on offer in Jesus. God's perfect will for your life. But if you can't trust that he's smarter than you, it's absurd <laughs> to think you're going to do what he says. You know why I do what my doctor says? Well, actually, I don't even ever go to the doctor. But if I went to the doctor, <laughs> do you know why I would trust him? He's wearing that white coat, right? It means he knows. <laughs> it's like the symbol of authority, right? He knows more than me, so we do what they say. If you don't think God knows more than you as to what brings human flourishing, it's absurd to think you're ever going to obey him. At root, the reason many of us are still in our own kingdom is because we think we know better than God. And for many of us, our entire Christian life is slow progressions towards his kingdom. You're progressing. I mean, you're not a riffraff, right? You're like reading the Bible. You know, you're doing things. You're here. I mean, come on, right? You're progressing. And so, but what can happen, y'all, is we progress and we progress and we progress. And then we get all the way up to the border of his kingdom and we sit down. We say, God, I like things like peace, hope, joy, and love, and those things. I like, you know, harmonious relationship. I like the idea of flourishing, but I still need to be in charge of my life. And, and it can be likened, y'all, to us, the, entire of our, the entirety of our Christian life, working our way up to the border of Canada, right? Like the AT, like you're on the hike, you got the thing in the tent, you're going all the way up, and that's your Christian life, and you're trudging through, and you got your buddies, and it's awesome, and you, you do the miles and miles and the work and the work and the years and years of traveling, and you get all the way up to the border of Canada, and then you just sit down. That's what happens for many Christians, is we want God on our terms. We want the stuff, we want the benefits, that's an image that Tim Keller gave me. We want the good stuff that we like from Christianity, but we still, we still need to be in charge. And the offer on Christmas, the offer that Jesus comes and gives us is to no longer be in charge of our life. It is to say to him, I want to follow you, and I want to obey you on your terms, not mine. I don't just want the warm fuzzies and the good stuff. I want all of you. Another image Tim Keller gives, I'm, my name is Chris Westbrook. If you were to say to me, um, Chris, I want to invite you over for dinner. I would like Chris to come, but I would like Westbrook not to come. I'd be like, well, uh, okay. I can't, I guess. See, many of us say, Jesus, we, we would like the good stuff, but we don't want your authority in our life. Can we just get the part of you that like gives us some tips on how to live a happy life but not have to submit to your authority? And Jesus would say, no, I'm sorry. It's all one package, you see. And the way that Christians have talked about this for years is you want him as Savior. Of course you want to be redeemed and rescued. You just don't want him as Lord. Amen. Christians have talked about it for years, and that's the dynamic that we're just getting at, y'all. That in the kingdom, if what's being offered to you is a kingdom, then what, the way in it is submission, is surrender is raising the white flag, is saying, and the only time we're going to do that is when we are convinced that he knows better than us. But what we find in Jesus is not only is he coming to redeem us, but he's coming to show us how to submit. Because in Jesus, God submitted fully. 
to the will of the Father. You see, he doesn't just say you need to do this. He's going to hold your hand as you do it. And Jesus says to you right now, come with me as I submit to the Father in every area of life. Jesus says to you right now, pick up your cross and follow me into death to self, into sacrifice, into selfless living. And I'm telling you, therein, and only therein, is the kind of peace, hope, and love, and joy that we expect out of Christmas. Let's pray.